This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, using his brand new computer, we're very excited, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. I mentioned that, Sam, because you and I have struggled with the audio with your old computer for a while, and it really sounds much better. So your new MacBook seems to be doing much better on the audio. Yeah. So if I if I don't have any chipmunk, like where I speed up and start again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Then we'll know that it was my computer. We'll know that it was your computer. Well, and, and you know, folks, Sam landed in that unfortunate era of MacBooks with his prior one where it had that just really awful <laughs> keyboard. <laughs> uh. there, was a, there was a window. If you're not an Apple Mac user, there was a window in time where when Apple switched from the keyboard that's on my MacBook, which is like a seven-year-old MacBook, which was really a great keyboard, they went to this weird like butterfly keyboard with these weird little switches, low profile thing. And what it was your space bar and wasn't it the letter E or something? The letter T. Yes. T. Okay. So you needed to drop an atomic elbow on the space bar to get it to move. Yeah. And so as somebody who writes a lot, I would have like six words strung together with no spaces and then have to like stop, go back, <laughs> put, put my weight into the space bar to get it to move. Yeah. Um, and then the the T button was catching, which wasn't as problematic. And you lived with that for a long time. And and then and and I know that the people out there listening who are Apple Mac users will say, oh, "Well, Apple had a replacement program for those keyboards." But then there was this weird <laughs> there's weird lineage on your computer. We got it off the. It was bought refurbished, I think, and it was a. Uh, some kind of deal where when you went in and gave Apple the serial number, they thought your computer was still in China or something like that? I, I have no I, idea. I, I, I think Leo bought it from a guy who opened up a trench coat on the street. Okay. <laughs> so let's just say that its parentage was nebulous, uh, and uh, we weren't able to get the keyboard replaced on it. So, uh, But he's now he has his brand new M1 Pro MacBook. It's like it's all like the latest generation here, so we're very excited for you. I am. I'm excited. This is good stuff. You should be two or three times more productive now. That's right. For sure. Just think about all the but, spaces you're going to have in your words again. You'll be able to put spaces between things. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's uh, like before that, it was like the ancient Greek where they valued the parchment so much they didn't put spaces. <laughs> that's how I was writing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. That's funny. So this week in our series, Good News of Great Joy, which is our Advent series, we're coming to Isaiah uh, chapter 9, which is another really famous prophecy of the coming Christ child. Um, probably, I don't know, I, it's a tie, I think, between seven and nine. You know, seven, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's very famous. People mm-hmm. have heard that. But people have also heard the, for unto us a child is born, unto us a yeah. son is given. I, I think this one wins the Christmas card contest. Do you think, think so? Okay. Yeah, I okay. think so. Okay. For unto They're us close. a child is born. They're very close. You know. Yeah. I'd... I, I, I'd go with this one. Yeah. I really would. Now, I notice as we're – and we're going to focus on the first seven verses of chapter 9 this week. Um, but I notice that as they come to the beginning of chapter 9, um, it starts off with, but there will be. So obviously there's something that that he had at the end of chapter 8. Before we get started, is there some context that should be set in here? Yeah, I mean, in Isaiah, God is announcing, he's predicting kind of the the distress that's going to come upon the nation of Israel and okay. the northern the northern 10 tribes are are going to be overrun by Assyria within right. just a few decades of when Isaiah's writing this, the Assyrians will come through and they will conquer and kill and do terrible things to to many of the people who are in those northern 10 tribes of the kingdom of Israel. And so, um, now, and then it suddenly shifts at when you get to chapter nine into kind of more of a 
a tone of hope okay. and redemption coming out of that. So chapter 8 had some predictions of, of things that were coming, judgment that was going to be hard mm-hmm. on them. So chapter 9 is sort of a relief valve for that. Um, so then it starts off with, in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's Isaiah talking about here? So you have, so he's talking about these two tribes. So if you went back in the Old Testament, Jacob is going to have 12 sons, uh-huh. and those 12 sons will produce the 12 tribes of Israel. And two of those sons are Zebulun and Naphtali, and they're allotted land in the northern part of Israel. Okay. And so Zebulun and Naphtali are really important to the life of Jesus, even though they're not major tribes, they're considered, you know, kind of the, the lesser of the tribes. But Zebulun is the home of the city of Nazareth, and so Jesus is going to grow up in Zebulun, which is due west of the Sea of Galilee. You go inland, you know, quite a number of miles, you'll get to Nazareth, and Naphtali is where you would find almost all of the the cities around Galilee where Jesus does his ministry, Capernaum, um, Magdala, places like that are Mm -hmm. all in Naphtali. And so Jesus' life... The majority of his life is spent in these two tribes. Now, what's significant about that is you would assume he's from the tribe of Judah. So he he shares the lineage. You know, if you go back to Judah, one of Jacob's sons, which runs all the way through David and Solomon, it's the kingly line. You would expect that he's going to grow up in Judah, but he doesn't. His childhood is going and most of his ministry is going to be done in Zebulun and Naphtali, which is surprising because these two tribes, those lands, are among the very first lands that go apostate. They turn away from God. They spit in his face. They embrace paganism. And they're going to be two of the tribes that are the very first to be conquered by the Assyrians. Right. And they go into darkness. They're right out of the gates. And that's some of the things that he's talking about right before we get to this passage is how those lands were going after all these pagan practices and necromancing and all that kind of thing, now all of a sudden the gloom and the darkness that just swallowed them up is going to be no more. Well, I think famously we remember um, the question asked in the New Testament, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it's obvious that that area of the country – was one that was discriminated or looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Maybe not discriminated against is the wrong term, but looked down upon. Like, mm-hmm. if you came from that area, you were from the sticks. You were from yep. an, a not good area of the, of the world. That's exactly right. So if you were, if you lived in Jesus's times, you can think of them as three different territories that are stacked on each other. In between, so the Dead Sea runs. If you go north from the Dead Sea, the Jordan River runs straight up into Galilee, and between. Those bodies of water and the Mediterranean, you had these three territories. And so on the bottom, you had Judea. That's where ancient Judah was. Mm -hmm. That's where Jerusalem is. You go north from there and you get to Samaria, which Mm -hmm. we've talked about. That's That used to be the capital of the northern kingdom. And then above that, if you go even further north, is Galilee. And so what happened when the Assyrians come through and they conquer all the northern ten tribes – they send their own people into the Samaria area to interbreed so that they can kind of do the capital of of the kingdom of Israel in the north with Samaria. And they begin interbreeding, and the idea is we're going to just totally eliminate the Jewish population. And so that region of Samaria became thought of as, you know, half-breeds. They were despised, you know, because they were reminders of the Assyrian conquest. Galilee largely avoided that because the Assyrians didn't even consider them worthy to to, to wipe out. And so mm. the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali and Dan up to the north, the Assyrians didn't do that to them. And so you had what were thought of as, okay, these are still good Jews up in Galilee, and they would travel around <laughs> Samaria, <laughs> which were thought of as the half-breeds because that's where the Assyrians went to get down to Judea. So – it's like they're second-class Jews, but they're nowhere near as bad as the Samaritans would have been seen. And we've talked a few times about um, the significance of Jesus being in that area in terms of um, 
you know, just the, the fact that he went to people who were sort of the outcasts or on mm-hmm. the fringe. Um, he went to the least and the left out kind of thing. Do you think that there's that that's the is that the, the like the total reason that Jesus has you know most of his ministry up there, or was is there something more about why Jesus came and settled and 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 ministered in that part of the country? Yeah, I I think it, it points at it when you get to the end of of that verse one and it says Galilee of the nations. It's okay. literally that word there. Remember in Hebrew it's goyim. It also means Gentiles, right. the foreigners, and the idea of that is. That whole region had much more international exposure than like Judea where they kept things very Jewish. Galilee, you know, you had the Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which was largely Greek, and you had the Phoenicians, and you had all that the different exposure in the north that brought a lot more uh, international flavor to to Galilee. And so it was seen as, you know, Galilee still had some Jewish prominence, but it was very – you know, they would have seen it as corrupted because it has a lot more international, foreign element to it. Um, and this is saying exactly like you just said. You know, he's coming to the the first ones to walk away from God. That's where the Savior comes. The first ones conquered by Assyria and wiped out. That's where Jesus comes to redeem. It's it's the nations. It's the Gentiles. It's the outcasts. And that's where Jesus is going to grow up in a very faithful Jewish home. And just um, just as a practical matter, he's also then growing up and ministering in an area of the, of the world where word of his teachings and ministries might reach some of these other countries. Sure. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. We've talked about that in terms of the the scattering, you know, the diaspora, the scattering of the uh, Jewish people. People to so that there were synagogues like then mm-hmm. all around the civilized world in that time, and the, you know some of those people were were Christians. It's like the mm-hmm. that's how the word spread is that God scattered the people at that time. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, and so in the north, you know, you, you remember the story where he has an encounter with the Syrophoenician lady, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, he he goes over and he feeds the four thousand. And that's in what's called the Decapolis, which were ten cities that were built by the Greeks on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So there's a lot more exposure to international elements, um, whereas when you went to Jerusalem, it was very uh, – it was a Jewish bubble. You know, you, it was protected. Culture was – you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees – well, not the Sadducees. The Pharisees kind of made their name saying, we are going to resist all the corruption that's coming from the outside world. We're going to hold on to our heritage. We're going to hold on to all this. And you would have had elements of that for sure in Galilee, but it was much more present all around. Yeah, yeah. So verse 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them a light shone. Um, on them has light shone. I, I, find, I find the past tense in that verse um, sort of interesting because are we, aren't we talking here about future events? And, mm-hmm. But he's talking about them in a past tense sense. Like he's, he's saying these things have already happened and yet – the dark, the great light that's going to be coming to the people who walked in darkness, the light shining on them, that's yet to actually happen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's this mix. As you go through this prophecy, we're going to go through the first seven verses today of chapter nine, and you'll see it. It alternates um, between future tense and past tense. But the past tense is, it's like it's, it's a, a very strong validation of this, this will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's speaking as though it it is already a guarantee past tense look at it it's sealed done kind of a a confidence is this one of those you know in the heavenly realms it's already happened you know kind of thing yeah. that's like yeah. this has already been sealed because one of the things that that uh, sometimes can be confusing is you know, we exist in in linear time. You know, minutes pass into hours, into days, and weeks, and months, and years, and so forth. And one second comes after another. But when you step outside of our reality, when you're when you're in the heavenly realm, time simply doesn't exist. And that's a thing that you and I, as as much as we might try to understand that, I know I can't understand it. I can't mm-hmm. I can't understand this idea of if I'm if I'm in 
in heaven with God, everything's happening in the same instant. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Everything, you know, and so there, you know, a lot of times when the, you know, when the Lord is giving us his word, sometimes when something's being said in a past tense, it, it isn't past tense, but in a way it is because mm-hmm. in his reality, it is accomplished. Yeah. I mean, you see that in the scriptures. The scriptures make it plain that that's the case. Like, uh, Psalm 139, where, where David is writing and he says, all the days ordained for me were past tense written in your book before one of them came to be. Yeah. And so, you know, the scriptures present this, this reality that God is so sovereign that he is writing out this story of redemption and it's already been written. He's already determined the ending. Like we, we don't have to be on pens and needles and he's, he's told us what the ending is, right? So we don't know how our days are going to turn out, but God in all of his sovereignty has written out all of our days already in his yeah. book before one of them came to be, which yeah. is a mystery to us. And it makes us think, okay, well, how do we play this out between God's sovereignty and, and our free will? And there's some mystery where those work together. But God in his sovereignty, it's like Isaiah can write these kinds of things past tense because they have been written. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to happen. I had uh, I had somebody I went to church with years ago who used to who used to explain it this way. He would say that it's like being on a rope swing, you know, one of those things where you got two ropes coming down to either side of a plank. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those the swings that are completely unsafe that we would never let children swing on today. <laughs> but when I was a kid, they're like, "Yeah, that's a swing. Go knock yourself out." There's so, not enough sharp things around this. Yeah, you know. So you know, and and a rope tied to either side of the plank of wood that was that made your swing. And and if you looked up, you'd see these two ropes paralleling each other up into the tree and and maybe going through the the cover of the leaves where they would be tied to the same branch and he he used to say to me that's how i see free will and sovereignty it's like they seem to never connect they seem to run parallel to each other almost as if they're they're so different that you can't come and yet when you get up above the tree line where you can't see they're both tied to the same branch. They're both tied. And, and maybe that was a bad illustration, but I always used to find it kind of helpful, this idea that free will and sovereignty are, are somehow tied up to the same sovereign God. You know, it's like it's all, it's somehow it all comes back to God and what his, what his plans are. Mm-hmm. Um, even our free will, uh, which is, which is weird. You know, like I said, it's it, like you were saying, it is something that we spend a lot of time. One of, one of, I don't know if I've ever, if I've shared this before. I feel like I've told somebody this recently, but the movie Forrest Gump is very much about this. Are things determined? Do you have a destiny, a fate that's kind of like you can't alter because it's fixed, or is it all about the choices you make along the way? And so every the, the whole movie plays that conversation out. Like at the beginning, you have Forrest asking Mom, "What's my destiny?" And then the the rest of the story is this kind of debate between the perspective of mom, which is mom always said life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get and everything's about your decisions where Lieutenant Dan, he has a fate. He was supposed to die. He feels cheated out of death when he's rescued. And so at the grave scene at the end of the movie when Forrest – and I love his conclusion, which is why I'm bringing it up. He says to, to Jenny's gravestone, you know, mama always said life is kind of – blowing on a breeze but lieutenant dan always said life is you know determined its fate and then he says maybe it's both you know and i think that's that's the reality there's a mysterious union of the two where you see god's sovereignty like you said they're tied to the same thing god's sovereignty and your free will simultaneously working together and yet god's sovereignty has to win out yeah so, verse 3 says, uh, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Um, this is a prophecy of increased joy, but it also sounds like it's a prophecy of provision. Mm-hmm. So, this is this is a victory. I, I mean, when I look at this, I, I see, one, it's, it's this... Messiah, whatever this good news is that's come to Zebulun and Naphtali and to Galilee and all the people who've seen a great light, you know, it's, it's you've multiplied the nation. Well, what does that make you think of? You know, it makes me think back to the promise given to Abraham, you know, the covenant that was given to him that, you know, he, 
is going to have a, a seed that blesses all the nations and his descendants are going to be multiplied like the stars of the sky and he's going to be given a great nation. Well, here it is. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as as with joy at the harvest, right? Everything is now coming alive again. There's There's an abundance. It's fruitful. And as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Well, that's a, that's talking about a victory. You know, when you when you would right. conquer something, right. when you would when you would achieve a great victory, you know, all of the, the the soldiers and everybody else would divide the spoil. It was it was you you share in the victory, and it's saying that those of you you've been defeated. Zebulun and Naphtali are going into a centuries, several centuries long period of great shame, and this is saying you're going to come out of it. With all of the promise to Abraham totally fulfilled, you're going to have joy, you're going to have an abundant harvest, and you're going to emerge victorious with a great inheritance to split. Are these things prophecies of like of actually like they're going to like have lots of crops to divide or is this like going to be all fulfilled in the coming of the, of the child? Yeah, for me, I read it through – you know messianic lenses, but okay. I'm sure that there's probably multiple ways that you could see this. Yeah. I, I think this the the hard emphasis here is messianic. Okay. So there. So Isaiah is saying that this multiplication, this increase in joy, this great harvest you're going to have, they're going to be a result of this child that's going to be given to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Um, the, the phrase, this, and the staff for his shoulder, uh, that, you know, that sounds to me like, the, and the rod of his oppressor, that sounds a little bit like emble- the implements of rulers, the staff, the rod, um, mm-hmm. elements of control. Is that what that's referring to? Yeah, so so it's it's all of this stuff is going to be broken, right? Um, the yoke of his burden. So right. what is that? It's a you know thing you put over your neck you, that you carry on your shoulders. It's right. the staff servitude. Which is, you're you're yep. being used as a beast of right. burden. Sure, all of that is going to be broken. And the, the interesting thing that you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is that talking about? Um, there's a famous story in the Old Testament with the uh, the judge Gideon, and he is the judge who goes against the Midianites, and I think that's what it's referring to here. Mm-hmm. And so Gideon takes – his army is way, way, way overmatched, and he tries to recruit you know, an army to fight against these Midianites along with other different nations that the Midianites had come into an allegiance with. And they all get together down in a valley and they're planning an attack on on the people of Israel. You know, they're they're strong. And so Gideon gets together, I think it's ten thousand soldiers or something, you know, a tremendous army, but still massive underdogs. And right. God's like, that's too many. And he God gives them two tests to weed out and eventually Gideon ends up with only three hundred soldiers to go up against this massive army uh, from the Midianites. And God gives them a battle strategy that they're to surround the mountains with jars that they shake and break and trumpets that they blow and they, you know, give a battle cry from all around the mountains, which would send the echoes, you know, bouncing around this valley. And then the Midianites wake up with all of these other allies that they don't know in a panic thinking that they're being invaded and they begin to slaughter one another. And so the idea is all of this oppression is going to be overthrown, not necessarily because you're lifting up your sword and you're great soldiers and you're going to throw them off, but because God is going to ordain a victory for you where all you do is lift up your voice. Mm. And so when it says all of, the, all of your slavery, all your oppression is going to be broken as it was on the day of Midian, well, how did Gideon get the victory? Well, he shouted and he blew the trumpet and you know raised the torch. And then God ordained that the enemies defeated themselves, and that's you know that's that's really the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, you you lift your voice and praise, and God wins the victory for you, and your oppression is overthrown. 
Yeah, and I think that's supported by the next verse where it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire, essentially saying that we're not going to need these implements of war anymore. We're not going to mm-hmm. need the, we're not going to need the warrior's boots. We're not going to need the, the garments yeah. that are used in this matter of, of blood, bloody warfare that, you know, it's like, Beating swords into plowshares, kind of thing. Yeah, this idea that that exactly. what you had as your army, you won't need anymore. Yep, it's done. It's done. Like you're not the one who is going to win this battle from this point forward. Right. And then when you launch into verse six, which is the famous one, sure, you're to understand why. There's another one who's coming who fights your battles for you. So all of this, you know potentially great outcome leads us up to verses six and seven, which are the famous verses here for unto us. I don't want to, I keep saying for unto us because my King James show. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. Now. Go for it. No, Go let for me it. just, let me just tell you something. Everybody falls back. I don't care unless you are of, a, of like a really young age, everybody of a certain age will always fall back on their King James English when they're when they're sort of paraphrasing the Bible and I, and you're guilty of this too on Sunday <laughs> on Sunday I was in the church on Sunday and you're giving us and you're talking about the genealogies and you're talking about the the begat and the begat oh, and the yeah, begat yeah. and the begat right and I leaned over to Tracy and I said probably half these people in here have never seen the word begat because <laughs> it's it's not in the ESV it's not in the NIV it's not even in the New King James begat, what's a begat uh, yeah. Exactly. I wonder, I'm thinking they, I think they get the context that you're talking about genealogies and who the father was and the son was, but, but you were like, begat, <laughs> begat, begat. And all of us that are, that are, you know, old people <laughs> that are King James people are like, oh yeah, I know what that is. But some, I'm telling you, some of the 20 somethings in that audience were like, has Pastor Sam got a verbal tick or something, a twitch? What's what's going on? So I remember the first time I came across a begat, when, and it wasn't until after I had become a Christian. It was like begat. What? Where? Why do they use that word? <laughs> uh, it is, uh, you know. The, the, so I'm just saying. So so every so often, it's like especially when I know the verse really well. Yeah. It it always creeps in the way it was worded in the King James because that's just. I, you know, I'm 61. But, I get to claim ignorance of hey, other I, translations. I'm, I'm somebody who who loves the the newer translations. I, you know, I'm I'm a fan sure, of them. Sure. But to say for to us a child is it sounds wrong. It, yes. it needs to be unto. It, it's it's it just is. It just it does seem better that. But but <laughs> but in my effort to read clearly the text from the English Standard Version, I will read for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And you can just imagine the unto. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hmm. Um a joyous <laughs> prophecy. Um, Man, so good. Yeah. You know, even that first word that we, you know, we hear or we see on the Christmas cards apart from the context is for, and it literally means because, right? It's, it's like you need to know what was ahead of this because it says for to unto us a child is born. It's talking about that warfare is over for you. You, you have victory. You have, you know, freedom, everything because it, unto us a child is born. So this child is the one who puts an end to all the slavery and oppression and warfare and everything else. So that's the context. This child is coming to bring this incredible victory. And in this, I, like one of the things that strikes me most, and I mean in every one of these titles and names is just – it's so rich, but it's so counterintuitive. Um, and that's one of the things that strikes me most when I see Isaiah – chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 together, I try to imagine myself being in Isaiah's audience and not knowing the gospel, like not having the gospels and hearing all this, you know, in a, in a culture that is vehemently monotheistic, you know, that that might not have understood the Trinity to say a child is born mm-hmm. and yet later on to say that he is going to be mighty God. Yeah. What? I mean yeah. – 
I'd be curious to know how people who are Jewish who accept Isaiah as, as authoritative would square that. Like who is this child that's going to be called Mighty God? I, I, having done a lot of, of digging into the names recently when I was studying for personal worship, I can tell you that one of the way that, – that the way that in which it is done is they take all of these names as one like run-on name. Like it's all one name and that – this particular thing where it's, where it mentions the mighty God, that this person is, is, it's the, it's the object, not the subject. Like this person is a counselor of wonder for the mighty God, for, you know, that kind of thing. So basically naming and, and most of the time, again, they're talking about it in terms of either David or Israel itself or Hezekiah yeah. or something like that. But the idea is they don't see these as separate individual names. It's one long run-on name, and they and they change it. They change the wording of it slightly, even within that. I read a yeah, lot. It doesn't I read a lot about this particular thing over the last week? So yeah, but, and and if you knew Hebrew, which everybody's going, no, don't go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. the the word there in the Hebrew for mighty has no preposition in front of it. Right. You know, it's gibor. There's no prefix that would that would say, you know, a counselor to mighty God. It's no, it's it's standalone. There's no preposition. It's mighty God, yeah. not a counselor to him. So that's not in in the manuscripts. So that's it feels like a stretch to well, get the there. Well, the name the name El Gibor um, is by itself that's uh, is only used in mm-hmm. two places in the whole Old Testament. It's used here, and it's used in Isaiah chapter ten, verse twenty-one, where it's referring to a remnant shall return to the mighty God. And there are there are Hebrew scholars that debate whether this is the is an actual name for God or if it's something else. But they all seem to agree that in chapter ten where Isaiah also says El Gibor, that he's talking about the God, Almighty God, you know, Yahweh, the God of Israel. I'm like, okay, so if he used that name in chapter 10, and you all agree that that is God, why would it be somebody different here? Mm-hmm. You know? And to, I mean, there, you just have to torture logic, because the next one is Everlasting Father. Well, what in the world? <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're everlasting... Uh, there's connotations to that, and yeah. the increase of his government will have no end. I mean, like it's just saying he will be God. I mean, it's 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 seems obvious to me, yeah. but maybe I'm sim- too simple to understand it. But you have, <laughs> but you have the child who's going to be called Mighty God, and then the next line is a son is given, and yet he is going to be called Everlasting Father, and then you have. You know the 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 nations, the government is going to be upon his shoulder, and yet of the increase, he's going to be the prince of peace. It doesn't come through conquering and war. It's I mean everything would have been counterintuitive to what they would have expected for this messianic figure. Yeah. Um, but it's I'm trying to imagine if I lived in Isaiah's day or even the days of Jesus before I could grasp what the gospels were teaching. This would have been like, wait, what? Yeah. A child is God? A son is the father? Um, the government is going to grow through peace? Like it's it's really stunning when you stop and think about all the things that this is implying. It's, mm-hmm. it's totally counterintuitive to the way the world does things. And I also think that it's – you know that it's interesting that it tells us that and his name shall be called and then it lists all of these different names for him um in in biblical terms and bible times your name was more than just you know yeah that's sam and this is mark mm-hmm. um but your name told you something about either you or it was about the time in which you were born or about the hope that somebody had or about the way they were there was something communicated by mm-hmm. the name, it wasn't just. I think this one f- sounds nice. Um, you know, th- there was a meaning attached to all of it. You know, I, people have asked me. Um, our kids both had. Our my son is named Kyle. My daughter is named Amy. Somebody once asked me why we picked the name Kyle, and I'm like, because his last name is Lautenschlager, and Kyle is a short first name. The worst <laughs> thing you could do is name him. You know, Bartholomew Lautenschlager. You know, I didn't want to. We you know we had a we had a rule. It had to be a very short first name. And, and 
that was just because the last name was long. So what I'm saying is there w- <laughs> there wasn't a ton of thought other than we just always kind of liked those names. Um, but that's not true in terms of mm-hmm. Bible names. Bible names all carry some kind of deeper meaning. Mm-hmm. They they carry a prophetic meaning mm-hmm. oftentimes. Yeah. You know, like Abraham, God changes his name to mean father of the nations. Sarah's name was was changed to mean princess, you know. Jacob's name is going to be changed from Jacob, which means deceiver, to Israel, which is, you know, he struggles with God and prevails. Like, all of these names God gives prophetic meaning to. And so it's like, okay, well, let me tell you some of my names right. that are going to, to have meaning behind who yeah. I am. They're my attributes. And then he lists these. Yeah, um, I did pick a nit with that first one. The, the ESV removes the comma between wonderful and counselor, which going mm-hmm. back to King James, it was wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I did – and I promise I'm not going to go too far into Hebrew stuff, but I did do some digging <laughs> into this a little bit. And the word wonderful is the noun form of that word and counselor is a verb. So if you're, if you're going to take them together, it would actually be saying he is the counselor of wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm kind of like, I like the noun being the, yeah. the, the subject. So I, I, I pitched a bit of a fit about that in personal worship. I was like, you know, yeah. and then I got into the whole, <laughs> well, and then I was going to get into the whole diacritic reader's marks with the Masoretic text where the Masoretes indicated what, what, and, um, I read, you know, I'm, in, I'm deep into I, my Kyle I, and Delitz. I need a cricket sound effect right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I'm just saying that the comma is defensible. I'm just saying that comma I, is defensible. I think it's right. I think you're right. And it's a noun. There. I mean, it would be like saying his name shall be called like miracle. Right. Or so, it, it's, it's a, it's it is a noun. It's a wonder. He is, yes. it, it is. It's, this is a wonder. Right. I, when I, like you, you know, when, when you look at it in the ESV without the comma, you think, oh, he's a counselor and he's a wonderful counselor. Like he's exactly. really good at it. Yeah. No, that's not what the, <laughs> that's not what it's communicating. It's, Miracle. In the English, they're putting it there as if it was an adjective. He's a counselor. Yeah. What kind of counselor? Wonderful. But that's a noun. It's not an adjective in the Hebrew. And the thing is, is that like, okay, remember when Manoah was talking to uh, the angel of the Lord and said, tell me your name. And they, what was the angel's response? He says, why do you want to know my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. That wonderful there is a very, very similar word, but it's the adjective form of it. So there the angel of the Lord was saying, my name is a wonderful name. <laughs> but here he's saying the name itself is going to be called a wonder. It's like it's going to be his name is miraculous. Mind blowing. Yeah, it is. It's so uh, so yeah, I was I was like I restored the comma. I was I was like I'm going to take my all my ESV Bibles out and draw a comma after something you know, like uh, but again, like in this, and you go back to the beginning. We talked about this, you know, this morning in personal worship. But the idea that God comes as a child, you know, if if you look yeah. at, you know, so many other mythologies, you know, like yeah, Athena just emerges full grown or something like that to come to be a goddess or a god, and this is this is really different. It's you know, God is coming into the world as a child. As a baby that's being born, and it it really does open up this picture that our God is coming to us in some sense vulnerable um, and dependent. You know, he's going to be dependent upon a mom and a dad to feed him. He's going to be dependent upon them to carry them, him and put him to bed. I mean, and ultimately God's sovereign, of course, so, you know, God would take care of him. But it's humiliating in some sense, humbling for God. The God of the universe, the one who at the beginning, when you open up your Bible and you read Genesis 1 1, and, and you see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by, you know, the word of his power, that God is going to be born. Yeah. He, he's going to be dependent. He's going to be weak. He's going to be, take on all these attributes of humanity that is relatable to us. And that is, stunning to me like that's it starts by saying hey you know all of your misery that you've been experiencing you you and the north of israel a child is going to be born you know and he's going to be god and he's going to come weak and he's going to be relatable and that's going to be your victory it's it's surprising um and a son is going to be given well there's john three sixteen for you um 
you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's it's just rich and you see one that's one of the most mind-boggling attributes of God to me. You know, I get mighty, he deserves that, and I get omnipotence and omniscience and I can't I can't fathom them because they're infinite, but I understand he's God. But when you tell me that my God is humble, that's surprising yeah. to most people. Yeah. That God would become vulnerable for you in some sense, weakened, exposed that shows you that he loves us yeah. because he's setting aside you know personal advantage and yeah. the things that he's entitled to as god to enter into our story and to be weak yeah. that's that's stunning yeah. you know as we were going through as i was going through the uh the study notes this week and and what i what i ended up doing for the 5 days was just taking a different name each day and talking about what that name sort of meant. Uh, to, so, so we had an opportunity to sort of meditate on that because I really think that's the part that you can really mine for some richness. Um, and, you know, we talked about uh, this idea of his name being a wonder or a, or a miracle that, that the name of Jesus would become in some sense a dividing line, mm-hmm. um, you know, in 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 many different ways, like I mean, until just recently when they decided to edit Jesus out of the calendar, um, we had we had BC and AD, you know, before Christ and Anno Domini, in the name, year of our Lord. Um, which, by the way, now that we have to do now, they have you know BCE and CE now for before the Common Era and the Common Era. I'm oh, like, I, I, yeah, I you know, I still every so often when I have to date something. I, just to just to irritate somebody, I still write it out in the year of our Lord two thousand and twenty one, just to irritate them. But that's I just because I'm like that's just to me. I'm sorry. I understand this whole like, but it seems petty. It's like for centuries we agreed that it was going to be BC and AD, and now we're going to get Jesus off the calendar because we just can't handle this. Um, but anyway, uh, this idea that his name would become something that sort of separated uh, separates the world and divides the world, and. You know, one of the things that I've that I've talked about a little bit in the in the notes is this idea that when you bring up the name of Jesus, mm-hmm. when you're talking with somebody, there is an immediate temperature change. Yep. It's either warmer <laughs> because if 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 you and I are talking and and you bring up the name of Jesus immediately in in a context where I can, you know, you're declaring that. You're a, you know, you're a disciple. You're a follower. Immediately, I feel a kinship. It's like a bond. Yep. It's like, all right. And so the conversation just got warmer. The temperature just warmed up. It's good. Or it can suddenly get colder when they're like, oh, so you're one of those people. You know, that sort of a thing. And I said, there's no other name that does that. There's no, you know, I always used to wonder what well, I, I said. I didn't have to wonder very long, but when I was younger and I was reading, you know, when Peter was writes about the cornerstone in Zion has become a rock of offense, a stumbling block, talking about Jesus being that cornerstone of Zion. And and he says that it's become a rock of offense and he's become a stumbling block. And you're like, well, I don't understand what that it means that people trip over it because they just can't they it's like you you can say anything that you want but you can't ignore him it's like you can't ignore jesus you there's nobody if you're going to say tell me tell me how you feel about jesus it's going to be a positive thing or it's going to be a negative thing there's i don't think you're going to have anybody really who's going to say jesus who yeah right at, well, at least not yet um yeah we had, i don't know maybe we're getting there yeah maybe that's true we i remember when i first came to faith, there was like a hierarchy of things that I was uncomfortable with. And I, I explained it to one of my brothers like this. I said, you know, if I was at the Grand Canyon and somebody was sitting on a bench next to me and we were looking over the Grand Canyon, and I said, isn't this amazing? There would be like no awkwardness, right? <laughs> but if I said, unless you're, you know, introverted or something. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Don't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> but if I said, isn't God amazing? Okay, it just got a little weirder, you know. Like, uh oh, he brought up God. You know, yeah. where's he going? And it gets a little more weird if you say Christ. You know, like, yeah. I can't wait for Christ. You know, Christ is amazing. But if I say Jesus, 
it like ramps up the awkwardness, or at least in my opinion, back in the yeah. day it did. Oh yeah, so much. Like I, you could talk to me about Christ, and I was okay. But the name Jesus, there's a there's a connotation that comes with that that's relational. It's yes. not an office. It's not nebulous. It's not an abstract concept. It is a person right. with a particular personality, right. and he has specific teachings it's it's no longer abstract now it's this this jesus i know and man it really did back in the day before i became a christian when it, it, it like turned a switch you could talk to me about god christ was a little edgy but jesus made me go like where's where's the exits <laughs> how do i get away from this person um and there was something to that there really was yeah <clears throat> There was a, uh, a band years ago that uh, I was a big fan of called DeGarmo and Key. Um, sadly, uh, Dana Key has gone home to be with the Lord. Eddie DeGarmo is still around. But in the 70s and the 80s and even in the mid-90s, um, I, this is one band that I had every one of their albums. You, you can't say that about a lot of bands. Um, but I had every single one of their albums. When the new DeGarmo and Key album came out, that was a big deal to me. And so when MTV, if we can remember that far back, got its start. Um, when they played music. When they played music. Um, yeah, that's true. They don't play much music anymore. So uh, when they got it, their start playing music videos, they picked up a music video from this band that was called 666. And it was a, you know, it was a band, there was a song about the Antichrist and, um, and it was full of special effects and it was talking about, you know, all the wonders that this guy could do. And then in the middle of the song, and they must have missed this when they decided to put it on MTV, <laughs> there's, there's a lyric that says, Jesus, won't you save me from this evil man of sin? I've read about his future. I don't want to go with him. Okay, so that's hmm. that's a lyric in the middle of the song. The song was not glorifying the Antichrist, but it was a song about the Antichrist, okay? But it got into heavy rotation on MTV because it was, hey, 666, yo, dude, Antichrist. It was like, that was, you know, rebellious, right? Ridiculous. <laughs> so, so this is, um, they ended up then on a, sub. they, they got banned from MTV, DeGarmo and Key. They, first they asked Somebody them for- Somebody finally read the lyrics? Yes. First they asked them for an edited version of the song and they said, no, we're not going to do that. And then they, you know, they- so at any rate, then the next album, it was either an album or two later, they had a word, they had a song called I Use the J Word. <laughs> and the lyrics to that is, they took us off the airwaves, banned from MTV for taking our religion a bit too seriously. They told us we were fascist because we made it clear and plain that the only trip to heaven is through a five-letter name. And the chorus was, uh, when we use the J word, it drives the world insane. When we use the J word, there's power in that name. But this second verse was is my favorite verse from the song. It says, let me tell you plain and simple. Let me leave you no doubt. I could never help you by leaving Jesus out. You say this word's offensive. To use it, it's a shame. But there's no saving power in any other name. Good for them. And uh, that's why they were one of my favorite bands. <laughs> or, yeah. um, but when I heard that song, it stuck with me because I was like, they're right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if I say God, I define God my way, you define God your way, you know, God. Maybe it's mm -hmm. God, maybe it's Krishna, maybe it's Allah, maybe it's whatever. We all have – we put the word God on a lot of things. Um and if I use the term, you know, if I talk about my spirituality, that's fine. But if I mention Jesus, we know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And right then, the conversation has a, a, a turning point. So I do think yeah, that, that's a, that that is a situation in which his name is a wonder. Yeah, and I think, I think part of the reason why I had such an aversion to that name um, – it's almost like there's a self-righteousness that's associated. If somebody comes up and says, do you know Jesus? And it's like, because I know Jesus, you think to yourself, and it's it's like this mistaken kind of humility where you're looking at that person going, oh, you think that you have a relationship with God himself, you're, that you're that special. Right. And so it, it's, it, it's a turnoff when someone talks about having a relationship with Jesus. But the reality is the thing that makes it most amazing is when you understand that I know Jesus and I can have a personal relationship with him 
and and it's absolutely in spite of how messed up I am, but entirely right. because he is good and he pursues me and he does all of the things that Isaiah talks about to establish a personal relationship with me. It's it's not that I've reached some pinnacle where now I get to use his name because I have a personal relationship with him. It's exactly the opposite. It's that God loves people so much that he would come into this world, take on the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We talked about last time so that you could have a personal relationship with him mm-hmm. all by his power, all by his goodness, nothing to do with me earning it or deserving it. And that is when you know you start to see Jesus as being unbelievably kind and sweet and, and really uh, unbelievably merciful and chasing after a bunch of rotten people to establish that personal relationship that we don't deserve. And that's when it was like it. The name began to be really sweet to me, mm-hmm. rather than than a turnoff. I think there is still a, a sense of, um, you know, some people will will feel like my relationship with Jesus is a private thing, mm-hmm. and and there and there are aspects of it that are private. I mean, everybody who's been a follower of Jesus for any period of time will tell you that there are that that relationship has grown and deepened and changed over time through many different intimate moments and conversations and pouring your heart out and 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 you know and God filling you and how it's like just all of these experiences of walking with God there's a reason why it's called walking with God because you're you know you're on this journey with him and so there are things that if if some if you came to me and said I want you to describe your relationship with Jesus and you weren't going to allow me to just give you an adjective to say it's great or it's good or it's close or it's it's wonderful or whatever adjective I might pick if you're going to say no 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 I want the details that would take a long time you know it's mm-hmm. like it, there's a lot to it from that and I think that that it be, that in that respect, it becomes sort of contextualized to the individual. And there is sometimes still a bit of awkwardness where, you know, if I say to somebody, you know, tell me about your relationship with Jesus um, and I want details, it's kind of means I want to get into the most private moments of your life. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm still uncomfortable with that. I mean, I'm kind of a, I share a lot of things about myself, you know, self-deprecating jokes and humor. I'm the first guy to pick on myself and that kind of stuff. And I, I'm, I'm happy to tell stories from my life and whatnot. But the stuff that goes on between my ears, and that's a lot of the stuff in there, in my heart, in my <laughs> mind, in, the, in those dark moments where I've cried out to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Those are things I'm not going to share with you. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to hear them anyways. Uh, you've got your own, <laughs> you know. It's like, yeah. um, so there is still a sense in which there is a personalization of it, and and for anybody who's been living in a big city, I am going to say that there are those moments where somebody with let's let's call it random clothing <laughs> and a lack of hygiene will and approach boards and, a, and, and will approach you and loudly inquire, "Do you know Jesus?" And I'm like, okay. Uh, this could go badly. Simmer, simmer down. Simmer down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, it's hard to say anything other than I sure do. Um, yeah. And, but the conversation is going to go who knows where from there. So um, anyway. It's interesting. That's, that's, the, that's the downtown street corner Fort Lauderdale experience that not everybody has had unless you live <laughs> in a big city. So the um, some of the other names, we talked about El Gibor, the Mighty God. Um, the one of the things that I liked on Everlasting Father and on Prince of Peace, I, as I was reading um, my Kyle and Delitz commentary, which I really like for Old Testament, like deep word study kind of things. Um, good Lutheran guys they were. Uh, anyway, they uh, one of the things that they were talking about is the particular way that these phrases were put together, the the specific words that were used. That there were certain implications in that. For for example, they were saying that the the way that 
everlasting father was constructed, the actual way that the Hebrew words were put together, was saying that the that this eternity, this this the everlasting part of it was was sort of proceeding forth from the father. That it wasn't just he's the father, he's your father forever, but they were but it's almost it's almost communicating this idea that forever only exists because of him. Hmm. Everything comes from him. Yeah. yeah. He's the source of eternity. Uh, and I started thinking about that. I started thinking about, you know, when we start to think about what's eternal, well, we know things that are not eternal. And let me give you a short list. The universe. <laughs> it's not eternal. It had a beginning. It will have an end. Now, we can all have our opinion about what there was before and what there will be after. We can have a long conversation about that. But for you to say that the universe is eternal, science would beg to differ with you. Mm-hmm. And so when you start thinking about what is eternity, how does eternity even exist when everything we know of, the whole known universe, is not eternal, how is anything eternal? Mm-hmm. And it's eternity does this is this is something that will make brains hurt, but eternity doesn't exist apart from God. Right. You know, he's That's what the they one were who saying. created yeah. the beginning. So we only have a concept for eternity because we know the one who is eternal. Yeah, there was there was nothing outside of him. There's no measuring time apart from him. He's the only being who is eternal. Yeah. So he, by definition, is is eternal. So it all stems from him. I, I had a conversation with somebody one time, saying where I said, you know, we were talking about kind of where everything came from because that's <laughs> that's where you wind up a lot in yep. conversations with people uh, because. That's where Paul takes you in Romans, where he talks about the 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 heavens and the, the created order. He's like, just look up, look up. <laughs> you want to see proof that there's God. Uh, so, you know, I'm not I'm not. If Paul goes there, I'm not ashamed to go there too. So I, I've talked to people about that, and and we'll talk about. I'm like, well, where do you think everything came from? And there's all these different theories about how the universe got started. And I'm like, one minute, sixty seconds before that, what was here? <laughs> and and. Sometimes, not all the time, but but I would a significant portion of the time they'll go. Well, it was just empty space, and I'm like, we measure space as the distance between things. If there were no things, there was no space. <laughs> um, so you know, it's it is one of those things that starts to get your your mind wrapped. But when you look at this, and again, as I say it, I the and Kyle and Delitz, uh, their commentary on Isaiah Part Two. Uh, Great stuff on this verse, but they were talking about how eternity proceeding forth from the Father. Mm-hmm. And one of the things when you get into the, the the loop of, well, what came before that, what came before that, what came before that, almost inevitably the conversation will shift when they say, well, then where did God come from? Ah, yeah. And, and there's a there's – a, we acknowledge, we know – in our bones that there has to be something eternal. Right. So you, you back them into a corner and it's like, well, where did the cell come from and where did that come from and where did that come from and where did that come from? Something has to be eternal. And right. eventually they'll say, well, where did God come from? And we say he is eternal because you know something has to be eternal. Right. Things don't just emerge out of nothing. Right. And the only thing that makes sense scientifically or theologically is that God is the eternal one the last name prince of peace uh this was also one that they that k and d commented on um that was really interesting because they first of all they talked about the meaning of shalom this the peace uh this idea that shalom means a a completeness and a a fullness that there's a it means a satisfaction sort of thing peace we think of peace as the absence of war but the hebrew idea is what you're saying so much more right and there and and they said that um one of the things they talked about was this idea of the prince that that removed everything that was not part of the peace um and i thought you know and i as I was thinking about that, I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the ways that, that Jesus can fill us is by eliminating those things that drain us. You know, it's like when, when we have that relationship with him, when we are following him, we begin to see the things that drain us. And it's like he almost puts them in front of my eyes at times. It's like he's like, mm-hmm. look at this. This is just taking your life, man. It's like it's, it's taking from you and it's giving you nothing back. Um, and, and there's been a lot of those things, bad habits and, uh, things that I have 
that I've put aside where I really feel like the Lord has showed those to me and said, one of the reasons that you don't have peace is that you allow this to drain the, the, the completeness, the fullness that should be there. It's like peace isn't the absence of something. It's the presence of something, but it's pulled on by all these things that we attach to ourselves. And that's kind of why, you know, when I imagine that step into eternity, I see it in my mind's eye as all of these shackles being cut at one moment. It's like when I take my last breath and I step across, step through the veil, the, what that, the way that happens is all of these shackles and ties and chains are going to be snapped in that one moment. And I'm going to leave behind everything that isn't his peace. And I will, for the first time, truly know peace. That's, I'm a little excited to know what that feels like. (laughs) I just, I feel a big sigh. Like, I think about all the tension, just even physically, not, I mean, the emotional stuff will be even better and, and the spiritual shackles that we have on, but just even thinking about, like, when you finally relax and you realize how much tension you carry in your body and constant stress and anxiety and you know, fears and anger and all these things that begin to, you know, take their toll on you, just letting all of that go, just being freed from it. It really does. It makes me want to just like yeah. just imagining and then to grow because it's not just that you you lose the shackles and you stay the same. Like it's ever increasing glory that you're sharing in and all the attributes that he pours upon you that you get to to grow in for the rest of eternity. You don't just leave the shackles behind, but you're becoming more like him for all of eternity. Like, it just sounds like a really, really wonderful thing. I I, I want to go to there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and that word, this is, this is another one of these, uh, you know, Hebrew etymologies, but it's really profound. I've been wrestling around with this for a while, but the word prince in, in Hebrew is sar, and you know all that comes from the the Akkadian um, Sarum, which was king, and it's still to this day. There's Caesar with the Tsar at the end of it is where that comes from, and Kaiser and the Russian Tsar. All of it shares those kinds of beginnings. But Sarah, so Tsar is prince. The name Sarah or Sarah is princess. It's the feminine form of this. And so, why am I telling you this? There's a word that's used. Two times in the entire Old Testament that's translated government. And so in, in verse 6, you'll see the government shall be upon his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Or the in verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Well, the word that's used there in the, in the Hebrew is misra. It's, you can hear that, sarah, in the, in the word. And it means they don't know how to translate it because it's only used twice in this in ancient Hebrew, and so they translate a government, and it's got a prefix. The me in Hebrew means from, and so mi sra, like from the king. What comes from the government? And what I love about this is it's saying his power, his authority, shall be upon his shoulders. And so remember, if you went up to verse four. It's saying he's going to destroy the things that are on your shoulders. The yoke is going to be destroyed. The staff that's on you, the rod of the oppressor, all these things that are laid upon you are going to be broken. And his reign, his authority, his power, the source of it, will be upon his shoulder. And what is upon his shoulders? If you go back and you read the early church fathers, they understood that what this was talking about, like his government – stems from what he carried on his shoulders. And, well, what did he carry on his shoulders? The cross. The cross. Yeah. So this isn't a government that's coming because he's strong. And notice, like when you think of a king, you think, you know, he wears things on his head, a crown, or he holds things in his hand like a scepter or a ring on his finger. But why is is this figure, why is his authority and his power and his governance Resting on his shoulders, that's, that's stuff that servants have. You, it's a beast of burden. It's, it's something that you're carrying. That gives you the authority. And when you think in terms of the gospel, yes, a son is given. And what he carries on his shoulders is what brings you into his kingdom. It's yeah. what establishes all the citizenship of every person that will be under his authority. And so 
Isaiah is is this is really beautiful poetry and of of this entire passage like that's something that this week that line more than any other that his authority is founded upon what he carries on his shoulders and that's the mark of the ultimate servant the one who lays down his life and that is truly a wonder a miracle um it's it's <laughs> it's stunning Every other kingdom that's ever been around that men have, have established by force, we can go and we can look at the ruins of these ancient empires now. But the good news about the kingdom that is built upon the cross is it will have no end. The peace that comes from it, the glory that comes from it, the justice that comes from it, the righteousness that comes from it will be from this time forth and forevermore and the zeal, it closes out, the zeal of the Lord, his passion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Mm-hmm. And so we have this great kingdom, this government that's, <laughs> that's established by the cross and the resurrection that will establish all of these promises. And this kingdom will never fade. It will never perish. It will never be in ruins. It will go forth from now to forevermore. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good word. And I think it's what we're going to end on here for our second week of good news of great joy. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, that it's been profitable for you. Uh, if you would like to hear the messages that are preached on Sunday, um, those are available through our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com you could also find them on our YouTube channel on our Facebook page we've got these things posted around also in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app if you go to the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and you search for Rio Vista Community Church you'll find our free app all of the sermons messages uh, are posted in there so that you can you know hear the sermons because for example this last week when Pastor Sam preached it was different from the podcast there he talked about things that we didn't cover in the podcast so they they all really work together uh so we encourage you to to catch those messages as well as obviously continue to come back here and listen to the podcast you can also find all the back episodes of the out of water podcast at our website at riovistachurch.com slash out of water you can find it on apple podcasts on google podcasts or on spotify Sam and I'll be back next week with another in the series Good News of Great Joy, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.